Lasting Media. This episode of Jonah and the Whale is brought to you by ShopCado.com, which is a female-owned corporate and personal gift company. I'm excited to tell you that Jonah and the Whale listeners get 10% off. Just use the promo code Jonah. So express your appreciation and enhance your brand through curated gifts with custom messaging. Be a gift hero at shopcado.com. Promo code Jonah. That's S-H-O-P-C-A-D-E-A-U-X.com. John Bellatieri was 26 years old when he was murdered. He's, he's a great person, and whoever did this is a son of a bitch. I do know that John did get into Angel Dust, and I do believe that this was a drug-related murder. My mother is ill, and I would love for her to have some answers before she passes. Real families, real stories. From Lasting Media, I'm Jason B. Jones, and this is Season 2 of Knock Knock, the unsolved murder of John Bellatieri. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Lasting Media Group presents Jonah and the Whale, a unique journey of triumph through tragedy. Hi, it's Josh Skinner, and welcome to Season 2. Imagine being a 17-year-old gospel superstar with the number one song in the country. Now imagine just a few weeks later having your entire career almost erased because the world found out you were pregnant. Today, we're having a candid conversation with singer-songwriter Nikki Leonti about an incredible story of endurance and starting over. We're going to cover everything from America's Got Talent to her brand new book, All Things Beautiful. You're going to love this interview. We keep it real. And now, here's Nikki Leonti and her underwater moment. Hey, it's Josh Skinner, and we have a very special show for you today with Nikki Leonti Edgar. You have seen her on America's Got Talent. You know her as a singer-songwriter. 20 years ago, she had the number one song in Christian music. She's got a brand new devotional. It's called All Things Beautiful. Please welcome Nikki Leonti. Hey. Hi. <laughs> or Nikki Leonti Edgar. <laughs> Whatever the demographic is that day. <laughs> okay, I love that. Well, Nikki, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've got a lot to talk about today from uh, you having the number one song when you were 17 all the way through America's Got Talent. You ready for it? I'm ready. Let's do it. <sighs> Now, people know you from all over. So you have fans from America's Got Talent when you were in the Edgar Family Band. You have a, a huge Christian music following because when you were a teenager, you had a few number one hits. Yes. And actually, that's when I met you, the weekend you had your first number one hit. I know. We were, we were eight, 17, and you had the number one Christian song in the country. What was that like? It was um, surreal, I think, at the time. I, I didn't connect to it necessarily because I was... I was conditioned and raised that none of that was of any importance. But I'm sure your record label was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were super excited. <laughs> but I think my parents growing up were like, none of that matters. And what matters is how many people you've reached for Jesus. So I would like diminish my accomplishments to myself to make it more digestible. <laughs> so you're 17, you have uh, a hit album, and yes. you're about to start your second album, but what happened? 
Well, <laughs> a crazy little thing called love. Uh, or, I don't know. I don't think it was or, love. Or do you want to talk about what you've been working on and tell them more about your career first? Well, I can... Let me see. Let me hit that real quick. Okay. <laughs> and that's how she got pregnant. <laughs> yes. This is how it happened, folks. That was... I met a guy when I was 17 years old, and he you know, was more experienced. And I was a virgin girl who hadn't even like really held hands with anyone. And so he, you know, smelled my... <laughs> virginist. My virginist. <laughs> and was very convincing to me as a abstinence preacher <laughs> to uh, infiltrate the barrier of my true love waits rings and my kiss dating goodbye knowledge and the whole thing. Um, yeah, he, and he, I mean, he ended up being a, a predator, uh, later in life as that unfolded, but it was a, that was a pretty traumatic experience, but I was, you know, I found I was pregnant and I hoped that I can turn that situation around and have some form of a happily ever after. Were you freaked out because you're 17 and you, you have this huge musical career and so many people are working on the next album? I mean, yeah. I was. I mean, there was a lot of talk of, of the next album, and that one had so much success, and they were going to parlay that into some more mainstream-type stuff. Not in a sell-out Amy Grant way. Just kidding. <laughs> I love Amy Grant. Um, but, you know, they had more plans for that second sophomore project. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was just, just scared out of my mind. I remember being at my road manager's house, and I was getting my hair dyed by the the Nashville celebrity hair colorist lady. <laughs> and she was just really, you know, real and uh, frank. And she said, so you've been having sex, Nikki? <laughs> I was like, I think that's, I think I did. I, I was confused. I didn't know anything about sex. Right. I, I was shown a, a stencil diagram of naked bodies. This was the extent of my sexual knowledge. And so my mom had this book and she'd open it up and it was like, all I knew was that every 10 years that you had larger amounts of pubic hair. <laughs> <laughs> and by age 40, that's and all you saw. by age 40, my brother would always point to him and be like, that's me. <laughs> that's where I'm at. Um, that's all I knew. So, I mean, are, are we allowed to go there yeah, on this? Go for okay. It. No, so yeah, I didn't know about ejaculation. <laughs> I didn't know about boners until I was on a road trip and he whipped it out and I looked over and I'm like, And he was ah! in a band with you, right? No, he was in a Christian band okay. <laughs> that was signed to the same label. Okay, gotcha. And um, I think he was having his own rebellion because he came from a conservative Mennonite family in, Amish, in an Amish community. They were dairy farmers. And so I, he was experiencing his own Sexual suppression revolution. and yes, okay. and all of that coming out. So my hairdresser was like, Do you think you could be pregnant? And I'm like, Well, he told me that I couldn't be. She's like, What? And I'm like, Yeah, he said that, you know, I, I couldn't be pregnant. I remember, like, <laughs> I remember running to the cul-de-sac of my road manager's house and dropping to my knees and singing a Chris Rice song. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, the, the stumble song? song? No, no, no. No. It was like, God, if you're there, I wish you'd show me. And God, if you care, then I need you to know me. Oh. <laughs> my little hands lifted. Um, she said, well, Nikki, I really think we need to go get your pregnancy test right now. And I'm like, I, no way. I'm like, it just couldn't be. And uh, so we did, and it came back negative. And so there was a buy one, get one free. 
<laughs> so I left the other pregnancy test in the bathroom, and I think it was like five days later. I'm like, I should get rid of this, but why don't I, I try it just in case? And it came back positive. Whew. And I was just, yeah, I couldn't believe it because it was presented to me in a way that it was impossible that I could have gotten pregnant. So four or five weeks after I lost my virginity, I was pregnant with Jaslyn. <laughs> 20 years later, she's here. 20 years later, yeah. What was it like when you told your record company? Well, I told my manager first, and she was a sweetheart. She was a real sweetheart about it. Um, not shaming or anything at all. I didn't talk to people individually. Like, I, It kind of was the weirdest thing. Like, I suddenly was, you know, I was out and everyone cared and I, I had people I employed. I had band members and road managers and um, there's so many facets to a career like that and people that depend on you for their living, you know. So I had all of these components to it and my life mattered and was important to so many people. And then when I found out I was pregnant, it was like this great disappearance. Of, and you're only 18 and everyone's yeah, disappearing. Everyone's gone at that point. I mean, there's a couple people I heard from. I think I got, I got a, a little mini bassinet in the mail from William Morris agency when I had my baby <laughs> with some like bottles or something. Um, there was, you know, I remember my um, producer at the time, John Elefante, he and his brother, um, they sent me some money right after. Oh. They were really nice. Um, yeah, there was some. There wasn't any like uh, relational connection to people. It was just this desolate thing, and I got really sick rather quickly. So I just remember I I <laughs> I got a few phone calls that sucked. And one was like Lifeway stores across the country have decided to take all of anything that has to do with you out of their stores, you know? And I'm like throwing up in, in between this. And this guy from a, a very prominent youth, touring youth program, I probably shouldn't say his name, um, he called me because I had been on their tours and I just, he was really sad that he had had me on his platform. Oh. Yeah. And you're 18 and they're telling you this yes. crap. Yes, I'm in bed throwing up, basically, like lost everything. And they're like, I can't believe I had you on my stage. Like, it's such a disappointment. I trusted you to help be an example to our youth. And look what you did, you know. I just, I don't think I was in such shock at the time. I couldn't process anything. So you have the baby, you write this new album, and then it gets released on September 11th. <laughs> <laughs> 2001. I did. I tried to make a comeback, <laughs> but it was hard when no, you know, when the radio, many radio stations, you know, they, they had banned me from there. Even though you got married to I the dude. I got married to the dude. I did a public apology. I did with Katy Perry. Uh, we did a show, uh, Gospel Music Week in uh, Nashville, and I did a public apology, and Katy came out right after crying on stage. And she so it was so funny and so dramatic, but she took a single rose <laughs> and dropped it in the middle of the stage in front of like a thousand people from the industry and said, this is for Nikki. She made me cry <laughs> and started her song. That's when she's doing Christian music? Yeah. <laughs> 
it was funny. I ran into her recently at, um, not ran into her. I worked for her at the, what is the uh, LA Phil place there? The Hollywood Bowl. I sang backgrounds for her. She said, Nikki Leonti, oh my gosh, I used to gossip about you when you got knocked up. <laughs> I was like, good to see you, girl. She was so funny. Um, so I came back, I did that Gospel Music Week apology, but it wasn't enough. I mean, I was too taboo at the time uh, for people to play me on the air and do anything. Were so. you kind of robotic with the apology or was it like, oh man, this is destroying me to stand up here and say all this? Or were you just like, I just have to get this done? Um, you know, I, I had to get it done. I, I was sad and apologetic, but by that time I had been sick for nine months. I had my gallbladder removed with, during my pregnancy. I had 200 gallstones in my gallbladder. Oof. So I had to go through that as an 18-year-old. By the time I had come out to apologize to everyone, I'm like, I paid my dues. <laughs> I did. Like, even yeah. like the, oh, pl- please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I, I've been puking for nine months. I lost everything I have. Y'all successfully got me out of this industry. So, you know, I, I'm sorry. And I was sincerely like, I'm sorry that happened. I chose life for my daughter. And took the Did you ever think route. of abortion? I did. I immediately did. Okay. I called a center and I um, talked to the lady at the front and got all the information. And I just was like, I can't, I couldn't follow through with it. And I um, canceled it. And uh, a part of me thought maybe I could do a honeymoon situation and say that I, <laughs> I uh, eloped and got pregnant on the honeymoon and all of that. But I'm... One thing is, like, I, I have to, I can't live with myself if I'm not authentic. Right. And I'm not a saint, but I'm not a liar. And so I um, I couldn't do that. So the only avenue for me was to share the truth of it from the beginning. How did you recover, and how did you recover your career? Hmm. Well, I didn't ever recover my Christian career. Okay. After I um, released the Letting Go album... On September 11th, 2001, uh, 2001 uh, I just didn't go back to it. I knew that there wasn't a home for me there anymore, and it felt like that. And I hated the feeling of walking into interviews with people, and they're like, they'd use my daughter and the word mistake in the same sentence. And I was like, I'm not going to have to, I don't want to live my life apologizing and trying to, you know, explain a past that you said God already forgave me for, you know, but why aren't you forgiving me? Do you think it was hypocritical of them? Yeah. I mean, it was like, and the God of the universe you're saying doesn't see my past anymore, but you do. Mm. So what is the, I mean, where was my direction at that point? It was was just nothing I could do. There was nothing I do. And, you know, so many of us were victim to the, the judgment cloud that was over us, the the accusing eyes, the the way that we saw different people in their lives. And, um, you know, I was a part of that. I grew up in that. It was like everything was kind of legalistic. And How did you survive? I barely made it, Josh. <laughs> because you go from, like, being the main act to weren't you singing backup for, like, Carrie Underwood and other people? Yeah, down the road. After... That all fell apart. I got a divorce from that baby daddy, the first baby daddy. (laughs) 
and I literally ran away from him, ran away. He um, was getting rather abusive in the end of the relationship. And he knew that I was like, I can't do this anymore. And he would drive down the highway going over 100 miles an hour. Like, I'm going to drive us into the next tree if you leave me. Like, crazy stuff started happening. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll stay, I'll stay. And just everything was just big old toxic manipulative mess. And so he started, I started finding out more about his infidelity endeavors and um, all of that. And, you know, I was encouraged by a lot of people in the church to kind of walk him through his sex addiction and to get him in therapy and counseling. And so we signed him up for like these brothers classes of other sex addicts. And I tried to stay in and I didn't want to divorce him. For me, it was like, you got pregnant and publicly went through this and now you're going to get a divorce. That's even more drama and more shame and all of the things. But I got to the point where he was just such a, a difficult relationship that I just had to go, but it, it was hard to get away. There were some times where I would try to get away and then my car would stop working two blocks down the road because he had taken something out of the engine. And then one night he threw my, I was trying to get away. He threw my keys into the field in Spring Hill and I'm on my hands and knees digging through the dirt, looking for my keys to get away. And I remember going, I'm, I will never be down in the dirt again mm. like this. I'm not going to. And I had made a decision. I'm, I'm going to leave no matter what, no matter how embarrassing. And so we were at the house one day and he's in so much pain. And it was like his uh, lower right quadrant. No, his uh, middle of the belly button lower side as a hypochondriac, I knew. I'm like, oh, your appendix are, are going to rupture. You know, like you're nauseous and all of these things. I'm like, your appendix, you need to go to the hospital. I need to call 911. Like he was killed over. He's like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do anything. And I mean, I didn't like the guy, but I didn't want him to die either. So I'm like, okay, here's the deal. You're either going to get in a car with me and go to the ER or I'm going to call an ambulance and you're going to have to pay for that. So he's like, okay, I'll get in the car. So we got there and his appendix, yeah, we're going and so they did this like emergency surgery on him and so while he was in surgery I called his mom and I was like hey can you come down and help me take care of him I'm working and I have the baby and he's going to be in pain and recovering and the whole thing and so <laughs> it's such a funny life so I even went out with some friends that night while he was at the hospital and like hung out and just was like whoa this is what freedom feels like, you know? <laughs> so his mom gets there. We get him home from the hospital. I drop them off at our house. I had just built a, like a five bedroom house in, and with a bonus room in Nashville. I guess you could do that back in the days for like no money, <laughs> um, custom house. And so I, uh, I said, I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'll be right back, you guys. And I had jazz in the car and I didn't come back Whoa. and I left them there. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He appeared in my new apartment one night. He had broken in and was standing over me. Oh God! Yeah, it was creepy. It was a creepy. How did you learn to? How did you make money? How did you survive? How did you provide for your daughter? Well, from this traumatic episode that I didn't get any therapy for. Yeah, I uh, further spiraled at that point because I was just traumatized over this guy. Traumatized. There was. There's a, a hundreds hundreds of stories within that marriage that would, would just blow your mind. So I had gone to Florida 
And I met a guy not long after that who wore golf shirts. And I was like, he looks like he has it together. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, he plays golf and just looks different than my ex, the rocker. I'm like, this is me making a How old were you at this point? 21. So jazz is like two, three. Yeah. Yeah. 21, already getting remarried. And then divorced by the time I was 25, the second time. Well, this one lasted longer. um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe at the end of 21. I was with the first guy for a few years and then him for a few years. So, okay. So you're leaving husband number two and you have your second child. How are you making money at this point? Well, so two children, two baby I was daddies. In Jacksonville, which and you're in Florida. Okay, uh, the armpit of our nation. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Jacksonville. Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that it's the armpit of our nation. It's just I just didn't enjoy it. Just his block where he yes. lives. <laughs> it was just such a traumatic time for me. I was miserable. Yeah. There's no music community in Jacksonville. I think I sang at this bar called Harmonious Monks <laughs> every other weekend or something like at karaoke. That's what I was doing after I uh, married him and moved to Jacksonville. That's right. I remember you doing. You were winning karaoke contests. Yes. And you even came out. You didn't you go to like New York for like VH1? Oh, I was on a VH1 show, the born <laughs> like a divas show. I was doing contests. I won a, a some money, and then I'd win like pay for everyone's bar tab the next week. You know, I'd come back and. And yeah, in Jacksonville, that was like the pinnacle of my career was winning some karaoke contests, singing like a whole new world or something, who knows. But that was miserable. And finally, you know, my ex had had a lot of problems keeping a job down. And I'm like, I could actually really help financially if I was in a town that I could, you know, get work in. And this isn't, there was Orlando. I went there once and I met with like, Johnny Wright's wife, the guy who did all the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And and she said I was too old. And I was 22. And I remember feeling so defeated, like at the age of 22, I had lost everything and that I probably would never make it because I was so old at the time. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? That is... She disheartening. Made, she devastated me, and she was. I sang "Eyes on the Sparrow," and she's like, "That's what Pink sang when she came in the office and auditioned for me." That's great, but you know, you're. I think you're too old. I'm like, what? You're like I used to be with William Morris. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. It was so funny. I remember um, filling out job applications to like be a waitress and stuff. And I was like, okay, um, number one singles and toured the country. Did. An Alaska tour. Big show in South America. (laughs) I went to Brazil on a missions trip for Brio, (laughs) focus on the family. So, yeah, there was, I didn't know how to fill out a resume. I didn't know what life was outside of that. But I worked, and I wasn't afraid of of working for my kids. And I remember, you know, right after I had jazz, I was at the Buga de Beppo in Franklin serving the people that used to work for me and people that you know, work for the record labels. And they'd come in and they're like, oh, where are you sitting? And I'm like, actually, I'm here to seat you. You know, it was so humbling. But it's it's a part of the experience that makes you How did you get out of Florida and start singing again? I I convinced my second husband to move to Nashville. Wow. And um, we were already having a real hard go as a married couple. We just, we didn't get along very well. And... um, there was a lot of different dynamics with that and just the financial 
ruins that were always happening. Like there was just no chance of us working. So I was able to get them out to Nashville and we were living in an extended stay hotel in Franklin with the two kids. And we had our little mini fridge in our little area. And he had gotten a job down the street doing something. And I got this phone call from um, a guy that I knew in Christian music. And he was like, hey, um, we had to let our background singer go and Carrie Underwood has an, an opening. And would you want to you know, meet with her and meet with us about that? And so I said, yes. And, you know, it was hard because I knew that touring would keep me away from my kids, but also it's like I could go out and send them money and we can get into a house again and get out of this hotel. I mean, it was the only logical thing to do was to go and take this job. And by that time you've been so humbled, you're just like, I'd love to sing again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I didn't care. And okay. I, even then, like, I was never a diva. You knew me yeah. back in the day. I mean, I was crazy. <laughs> I would take any dare and I'd be a nutbag. But I was never a diva that felt, like, entitled to, uh, you know, this position or fame or anything like that. So singing with her, I was like, okay, let's let's do this. So I had a sit-down meeting with her at this place in, in Franklin. And I was a little nervous because she was rather quiet and um, so, like, two nights later, I remember being at this fairground somewhere and singing Jesus Take the Wheel and, like, my like tears just coming down my face, just feeling really grateful for uh-huh. the money and the moments. And, you know, I didn't think that I would get as much out of background singing as I did, but I enjoyed it. Now, there, were <laughs> there was some problems, you see, and I had some <laughs> meetings with management with Carrie because... I was used to being the front and center girl. <laughs> yeah. I had, you know, I had never been a behind the scenes person. So I think we were like doing Jay Leno and it's hilarious. It's on YouTube. <laughs> we're doing Before He Cheats on Jay Leno. And I am just behind her with both hands out, shaking my head <laughs> back and forth, hands up in the air, like <laughs> diva pointing, singing, like it was my time to shine. And she's very like still standing there her hips move Mm. but the only thing moving in the screen is me bobbing (laughs) side by side behind her and the manager sat me down after jay leno we were doing like ellen the next day he's like nikki i know you when you do live shows with her on stage and we're touring like it's great but right now it's very focused On you and her, and so we need to, like, maybe tone it down a little bit. So I think for Ellen, like, I didn't move. I felt like the wind (laughs) sucked out of me, not realizing. And now, I mean, looking back, and my friends watch it all the time. They're like, let's watch the Carrie Underwood one. (laughs) And then we just laugh about me being this little performer as a background singer. But, yeah, I didn't know how to What was it like working on Glee? Oh, wow. That was so much fun. Now, that came... Now, after Carrie, I came to L.A., I signed to Warner Brothers, um, had a deal with Nikki and Rich was the group, and we did Ellen and Leno ourselves and all this stuff, and then I lost my record deal. I mean, we thought we were like the biggest financial signing to Warner Brothers like that year. So much money they put into us and gave us. They gave us lots of cash. I have a great lawyer, Doug Davis, in New York. And he just really gave us an incredible deal to where they had to pay me to leave 
Wow. The uh, deal. So I had some walk away money. But I was spending money because I thought, you know, they were pumping this up like we are the next big thing. Um, and so what happened was this, the people who signed us ended up getting fired. Mm. And so the whole new regime that came in wasn't, they weren't interested in having us because when you look at the numbers, the output financially was astronomical. But we had also never released an album. So there was just, it didn't look good on paper. So they cut us from the roster. And in that time is when I got this phone call from my friend Tim Davis. And he's like, we're working on this little show called Glee on Fox. And, you know, have you thought about session singing again? Like, I'd done it briefly in Nashville to pay bills. I'd get like $75 to sing like a writer's demo or something for the great songwriters in town. And they always loved to hire me because I wasn't, exactly a professional session singer, I would give it my own, like I was an artist singing their songs. And so I started to get all these jobs because they're like, you give like a really authentic take on this song. It doesn't sound like you're just singing the notes. And um, Tim helped me get into that as well back in, in Nashville. But he called me up and, and I was at the time putting quarters into a, um, whatchamacallit, uh, the washing machine at the, uh, the laundromat. And he was like, are you, you know, interested in session singing? I said, sure. At the time I was filming in San Diego, uh, I was the love interest of these two great actors in this film and I had never acted. And it was just a terrible experience for me because I just felt so insecure. And uh, I got the call, like, can you come in tomorrow and sing on Glee? And I had filming for this indie film. And I'm like, I have to get to Glee tomorrow. I have to somehow get out of filming and get to Glee because I feel like that's where I'm going to make money. Mm. Thankfully, you know, it was because this indie movie wouldn't have got me anywhere as the, the actress that I was wasn't very strong. <laughs> so I did. I'm like, you guys have to let me go. You have to let me go do this. And they are like, do you speak Spanish? Yeah. See, sí, I said, <laughs> I didn't really speak Spanish. Habla Espanol. Yes. I'm like, si, senor, I can do this. You're like, I had a dog named Taco. <laughs> I did have a dog named Taco. Um, so I just said yes. And I'm like, I called some people and like, you got to help me through. And it was, I mean, it was like, not a Spanish song. It's a Lady Gaga, Americano. <laughs> so I don't really consider it Spanish. I don't even remember was this like the pilot of Glee or was no, it already on? it was already going. Okay. But I sang and Adam Anders, the incredible music producer of the show, pushed the talk back button and he was like, hey, where have you been? Oh. And I remember my heart just sank and I'm like, here? <laughs> <laughs> I've been here. And he's like, hey, you're going to make a lot of money. Get wow. ready. Get ready. You're going to make a lot of money. Wow. And uh, I left. I had to drive back to San Diego to finish filming, but I was tearing up in the car. Like, I don't know what this is going to look like or, if, you know, what, but I just can't wait to see what happens. And I ended up doing, I don't know, over 100, but... Over 100 episodes. Well, uh, songs. Oh, songs. Wow. Maybe 150 songs or something for Glee. And did you work with the cast? I worked... We worked in our own little worlds. Okay. Um, behind the scenes, we would do background vocals. Sometimes, you know, we would be a lead voice for an actress or um, I did, uh, was it Man Eater or something for a cheerleader I sang once. I mean, you just kind of fill in where they need it. But the actors on Glee are incredible singers themselves. So 
Unless it was like a, a guest actor that couldn't sing or something. Basically, everyone sang their own stuff, always. What was it like when Corey Mon- Monteith passed? It, there was a, a vibe, you know, it was all, everything changed. And we t- had taken some, I believe we had taken some time off after that. And, um, you know, I worked directly with Adam. So he's kind of the only face of the, of the show that I really spent a lot of time with, him and Tim Davis. Um, but he was, you know, visibly shook and upset by everything that had been happening. So it changed the shape of the show entirely. Everything changed after that. Now, when you were working on Glee, uh, you were also writing for some artists. Who were you writing for? Oh, wow. Let's see. Well, a lot of my writing in the last 10 years has been for films. Mm-hmm. So everything from like Victoria's Secret commercials to Ford commercials. I've written for so many Disney Channel movies. Um, Ice Age, song for Jesse J, Robin Thicke, Candice Clever, Rebecca Ferguson, a lot of overseas like K-pop, Ivy Kanu, Kanu, don't remember her name. Yeah, lots of lots of writing. Do you have a favorite song that you've written? Hmm. Over the years, over their twenty-year experience. You know, I would say um, Cat and Mouse, Nikki and Rich. Okay. It just came together with some wine. Nice, as it should. At, at Rich's studio. And I was reading this book at the time called Why Men Love Bitches. Okay. And I decided to write a song based off of that concept of, of just like, I don't, I don't need a guy type thing. Which that's no one's ever written a, guy, a song like that. <laughs> but, you know, we were doing this... The, 60s doo-wop sound so it was like a i wanted some maybe edgier lyric to the doo-wop sound which was funny was when we got dropped from our deal they said that amy winehouse like that throwback thing is over it was so funny as labels don't know anything a and r's don't know anything because like two years later cut to all about that bass you know Mm -hmm. and like all these other throwback songs i mean so many people have throwback e type leon bridges i mean just great artists do you know an ode to the 50s 60s so it was just them being dumb basically. what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned i mean because you've just told an incredible story and we haven't even gotten to uh, america's got talent <laughs> <laughs> what lesson yeah well, like has you know if people it's just it seems like you've just restarted your career so many times whether or not you yeah. liked it <laughs> i had to yeah what's the secret or what's What's the biggest lesson that you think you've learned over these 20 plus years? In artistry, there's a benefit to sur- the survival mm-hmm. aspect of it. Like, I know people who have like rich parents are co signed by that, and it takes away their ability to reach for their goals in a way where you have to do it. Mm. I think for me, it was like as a single mom, most of the time, if I didn't make it work, who was going to make it work for me? That always worked in my favor. I became a good businesswoman. I had ideas outside of just, okay, like a lot of singers, even now that come off these shows and um, these idols and these voice shows, and they have incredible voices and they can sing anything at a karaoke bar, they, you know, those songs, the cover songs and stuff. But there's a lack of, of drive and um, artistry, individuality that can separate you from just being a great singer. And I think for me, not that I even had that artistry necessarily. I just had the business brain and that's what kept me alive. 
was that I wasn't afraid to email an executive of a label or um, an influential person at a movie company. Like I, I just went straight in and just honed in on the relationships and kept close to that and just pushed myself and kept building. You know, I, I had to. I had to make myself work because I didn't want to starve. It was survival. Survival. Yeah. Now, Nikki, I know that you love Judy Garland. <laughs> can you uh, can you just end with a little little Judy Garland tune for us? Let's see. Um, young Judy or old Judy? We can do both. <laughs> I haven't done a Judy impression in forever. Your Judy impression is pretty good. I'm saying, My see. Judy impression turns into like Cher. <laughs> I, can get, I can teeter on the edge of Cher. I say, somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> Way up high. I can't even tell anybody. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. <laughs> that wasn't perfected. I didn't. You didn't let me know we were doing this to say, clang, clang, clang went the trolley, <laughs> ding, ding, ding went the bell. Wait, that's the older Judy. That's older. Oh my Give goodness. me a drink, Judy. <laughs> Josh and I meet at Judy. Yeah, we, we both do. love Judy. Yeah. Uh, can you end with a little bit of Everlasting Place? That was your first number one hit. Oh I love that song. Oh, my gosh. Um, don't, let's say the key. Don't you want to come with me? Like, don't you want to come with me to an everlasting place? Place. Look, I, I'm a session singer now, so everything gets overly analyzed. No tears. I think it's higher than that. No tears and no pain. It's higher, yeah. Forever will remain. Forever in the arms of love. Sheltered in the wonders of such a beautiful place. It's an everlasting place. <laughs> and we will end there. Nikki Leonti, Edgar, thank you so much for being Thanks, on Joan and the Well. I Thanks for you. sharing your heart. Thank I appreciate you for it. Having me. Thanks for listening to today's conversation of Jonah and the Whale. If you would like to hear our latest episode, don't forget to visit us at jonahandthewhale.show or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, your ratings and reviews keep our show afloat, and we would love to hear from you. Jonah and the Whale is executive produced by John Fender, Jason Barrett, and Josh Skinner. It's edited and produced by Jonas Litton. We want to hear your underwater moments, so please use the hashtag MyUnderwaterMoment. And thanks again for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Whale.